0: Good okay. morning. This is Radio Jackie broadcasting to Southwest London on two two seven meters medium this wave. This is
1: Alice's Restaurant ninety point four megahertz, and we're here to bring you the very best in rock music. You're into Lou the Duke here on Radio City. If you want to write, anyway, welcome to Mar on two six six meters medium wave, the sound of the Northwest. It's a Thameside radio on ninety point two megahertz VHF. <laughs> and welcome to another Pirates of the Airwaves podcast. This episode, I'm chatting to Chris Cooper from Birmingham. He tells us about starting the shortwave pirate Empire Radio, then moving on to Birmingham's FM pirate EST, and then how he did a short period on the voice of peace, and later on on Radio Caroline towards the end of her offshore life. Just before we start, don't forget to review, like, subscribe, or follow the podcast. And if you would like to make any comments or would like to contribute in any way, then please email us at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. Right, let's get talking to Chris. Welcome to the Pirates of the Airways podcast. Um, Once again, something a bit different. I seem to say that every single week, we're going to go outside London. We've been very London-centric over the last few uh, episodes. But we're going to go outside London and talk to a guy called Chris Cooper, who was a pirate back in the 80s in Birmingham. So, uh, hi Chris, thanks for joining us. Well, right, Mark, that's that's absolutely fine and I'm
0: I'm still so old. I go back to the seventies with the pilot
1: activity as well. I think we're all a little bit of seventies as well, aren't we?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well I'm I'm gonna start
1: with, with the first question I ask everybody, which is when did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to just listening to the radio?
0: Um well i was just aware of offshore pirate radio since since the sixties but l- land based pirate radio probably not until about um seventy four seventy five i think i started um uh, being being aware of, of other stations uh on the on the band which were clearly neither commercial nor b b c nor offshore uh, because by that time the offshore stations had uh Don, uh, except for Caroline, of course. Um, and then I suddenly thought, oh, where are these stations coming from? And um, yeah, that started me on the road to um, <laughs> to nowhere really, because I'm still on that road and I'm not sure where I'm heading. But uh, but that that was it. Yeah. So let's let's say '75. I became aware of land based pirates.
1: Okay. And and um, what stations were they? Were they local Birmingham stations, or were you on shortwave, or what was it?
0: Short ways to start with, most definitely the, the, the Sunday morning uh, uh, Hobby Pirates. Um, I honestly can't remember the names of the, of the very early ones I listened to, uh, but sort of by the late 70s, it was uh, uh, stations like EMR and uh, Atlanta uh, and, and quite a few stations coming over from uh, Ireland as well. Um, that's what, uh, what piqued my interest
1: yeah, for me, I think the, the the early ones I remember the shortwave ones with uh, was Zenith, um, Cavendish, and there was, was yes. there a Britain Radio or Radio Britain or something yes. like that. Yes,
0: there was. There was a Britain Radio as well as the of Britain Radio. There was a yeah. pirate Britain Radio.
1: Yeah, I'll be brutally honest with you. I've never been really an, uh, a shortwave listener. I used to listen because they were listed in the Time Out article that I read uh, about pirate radio but to be honest uh, i've never really been a shortwave listener i'm not very tolerant no, when no, it comes that, to bad that's signals right.
0: it's it, it not always the easiest way to to listen but it was it was my route into radio because it was the the easiest one to do in the late in the late 70s okay uh, and were,
1: were there also local stations in birmingham as well around that time not
0: particularly that i'm aware of anyway um Local activity in Birmingham didn't really start probably until about 1980, uh, something like that. Um, And then... Through through the 80s, there were a number of stations, but uh, a lot of them were black music stations, which did a very good job for their community, but weren't really the sort of stations I wanted to listen to. But the most famous one was probably PCRL, which got uh, uh, a lot of media coverage, a lot of raids, and they just kept coming back. Uh, but they, they, they did very well in the in the early to mid eighties. Um, but um, but yeah, it was the nineteen eighties before local radio came to uh, Birmingham.
1: So before BRMB and Mercia and Beacon and all these
0: other stations around your way. Uh, well, yeah, um, Beacon came in seventy six, didn't it? I think BRMB in seventy four. So so they were quite quite established, but. People were getting bored with them by 1980, and uh, and I think that's that's why they were, they wanted an alternative. Um, simply, they were they were too mainstream. That was that uh, which commercial radio has got to be, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had the same thing in London, obviously, with Capital, and uh, you know there was the excitement when Capital started up, and it was something going to be something new and different, and it. Like all of these stations, as you say, they have to survive commercially. So they've got to go for the, for the want of a better phrase, the lowest common denominator audience. So they play, exactly. top, they play top 40 and, and uh, you know, I, that's the way it is. Uh, I, I totally understand it. We could get into the whole, the way the IBA set these stations up and, uh, and the uh, and Radio Authority carried on with it. But uh, that's, that's... Yeah, it
0: was pretty bad. I mean, uh, at, at the time, uh, uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, I would. Pretty much against the uh, the IBA and the whole idea of the way the commercial radio was run, uh, thought it was pretty awful. But but looking back now, it's so much better than the stations, the commercial stations we've got these days. Um, uh, I used to criticise BRNB like hell, but it had a rock show, it had a classical music show, and uh, and that and, and and pretty good sports coverage, um, and yeah, that's. It, it, it did what it did very well. And Beacon Radio from Wolverhampton was undoubtedly the uh, jewel in the crown of the um, uh, ILR network uh, because it it was a breath of fresh air and it did offer music that wasn't heard on other stations. So, it, you know, you can't completely knock the early days of the IBA. But, uh, but nevertheless, yes, uh, there was... There were markets that weren't fulfilled, and that's what led to the pirates uh, setting up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard lots of really great things about Beacon. I didn't live in the area, I live in Beacon's catchment area now, but of course, there is no Beacon radio anymore. Um, no, that's,
0: it, it, it was great. Between when it started in 76. It came in with a bang, with a breath of fresh air, and it lasted as being really good until the early part of the 80s, probably 82, 83, started going down. Uh, but, but it was a fabulous station, one of the best radio stations we've, we've had of, of any description in this country.
1: Yeah, well, I heard the guy who ran it was a bit of a maverick, and, and I know the, uh, the, the, I, the IBA Absolutely. didn't, didn't yeah. like him very yeah. much. <laughs> 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 but they, they gave him the franchise, so... Uh...
0: Exactly. Exactly, they did. Yeah, yeah. you had uh, Alan McKenzie and, and Jay Oliver, um between them, they they knew radio. They'd got experience from America, and they, uh, it was a bit like when Radio London came to the high seas at Christmas '64 uh, with American backing, and they knew what they were doing, and uh, and they shook up the airwaves. And Beacon did did very much the same with with, with American owners who knew what they were doing in radio. So. Yeah, it was a good. There it were was, it was good times.
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, as I say, you say, you don't really know what you've got until it's gone. Um,
0: exactly, that's it.
1: And yeah. and I and I think now you know I think an awful lot of people in London would love to see the old Capital Radio come back, but um, yes. th- that's that's never going to happen.
0: Um, it's not. I mean, I'd like to see BRMB come back, even though I used to mode of it like hell, but compared with with what we've got now. Uh, it's much better. Well, there are, there, around
1: nowadays. there are groups of people who are bringing back some of these heritage stations, and I know that there are a couple. I, I, I don't know whether I'm speaking out of turn here, but I, I did hear that there was a, a group, you know, who wanted to bring BRMB back. Certainly, Victory's come back in Portsmouth, and they've done very, very well. Yeah, yeah.
0: Whether it's the same, I don't
1: know. But, um, uh, well, it, it seems it seems to survive, and I think if and they've got a yeah. proper studio and a proper office and everything. Um, so. I don't know and put you know victory is one of the stations that lost their franchise you know to to ocean sound so uh, yeah. but i know that there's i know people from that way and there was a lot of nostalgia for that station um you know
0: yeah but yeah, um, nostalgia is great, but you can't always keep turning the clock back yeah. um once it's gone it's gone i'm afraid well i i, I don't dis,
1: i don't disagree with you there and and um you know i i, I understand why people do have what what I would call heritage stations, for the want of a better phrase, you know the RNIs and yep. the swinging Radio Englands and the uh, you know and so on and so forth. But you know, and that's fine. I've I've got no problem with those existing at all. I wouldn't criticise them at all for doing it. It's just not my cup of tea, personally.
0: Exactly same yeah, reason. Same
1: reason I don't listen to boom radio as as well. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. Okay, so so your your introduction really is shortwave. Uh, I assume this is why you started
0: a shortwave station? It is. And uh, looking back, I mean, we're, we're now looking at 77, 78. Um, we're not, we weren't engineers. We've suffered all along by, by not having engineering capacity to run stations. So we had to buy equipment in from elsewhere. And most of the equipment that was accessible then was, was shortwave uh, rigs because they, they were, Quite easy to obtain um, fm was was a definite no no really it wasn 't until the 1980s that the uh, transistorized fm transmitters became around and um, uh, a- a- AM was was possible, but the equipment was big and bulky and it needed to be run by the from the mains uh, which limited the um, Amount of uh, locations you could use to to operate from. Uh, I mean, shortwave was the same, but it was much more difficult to track down. So you felt much safer on on shortwave. So uh, so that that was why pretty much why why we started, um, and and it was a great way to to get into radio. with we'd, uh, we'd just come on the air once a month, one Sunday morning a month, but usually you'd get. 30 or 40 letters for each broadcast for special occasions you could get twice that many and uh and, and people really got into it and we developed a style of mixing music and comedy on empire radio Um and it's and, and it seemed to go down very well so uh undoubtedly empire radio was was Although I say it myself it was one of the better shortwave stations, and uh, probably wasn't up there with EMR. That was the one that uh, uh, European Music Radio, the one that uh, that everybody in shortwave remembers, and and it had a fantastic reputation. Uh, I wouldn't try to say we were competing on that level, but for for what we were doing, I think we we did reasonably well, and it, and it gave us greater uh, experience of radio as well.
1: Yeah, the, the um. I mean, I've spoken to to a few shortwave pirates uh, in the past. One of the things they said was that obviously a lot of the mail they used to get was DXs from around Europe and, uh, and the world, and the uh, what they tried to do because they spent so much time putting their programs together, and people would listen for one record and one link. Note that down, and then off they'd go to find another one. And what they used to do was try and put the address at the end of the hour, so that people would have to listen to the end of the hour of this brilliant program that they put together before they would tune off and look for another station.
0: Absolutely right. Yeah, it it it, it is a difficult holding listeners on shortwave, um, and we 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 tried doing. Um, Addresses. We were more random with the address, because if, if you knew that the address was only going to be read out at the end of the program, then people would just tune in for the end of the program. Um, but the other thing is that the address would be well-known anyway, because most people used Kent Place, knew Newark, not MG236JX, that's ingrained in my memory from 40 years ago. Um, you know, m- most of the stations have the same mailing address anyway, so people tend you to to know where to where to write.
1: Yeah, I, I, again, same thing in London. You know, I mean, I can still remember all my mailing addresses and telephone numbers that we used to use as well. Yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, and it's forty odd years ago. Uh, and, and these these things are just stamped into your brain um, because you've read they them are, out so it's much.
0: much. It's much easier to remember things from forty years ago than it is from forty days ago, but. Maybe that's a sign of age more than
1: that. <laughs> it's that old thing, isn't it? I can't remember why I've gone in the kitchen now.
0: <laughs> no, nor me.
1: Exactly. Um, okay, so uh, Empire Radio. How long, did, how long was Empire Radio on for?
0: It was about uh, two years uh, regularly. We did a few one-off broadcasts after that, but it was a, a regular monthly station from uh, May... Uh, from, well, two and a half years, from May seventy-eight. Uh, until Christmas 1980 when we did the sort of official close down and then just after that. There was the odd broadcast which continued right through until the 90s and in fact in um, 2017 uh, we returned to the air and celebrated our 45th birthday just as a complete one-off. So Empire's never really completely gone away but, uh, but really lasted two and a half years as a... Uh, as a regular station
1: Right, there, there, there are still quite a few shortwave pirates out there as well um, the one that always comes up is Radio Pamela but I know there's a few yeah, others out um, there
0: Because there were so many stations trying to broadcast on on the uh, 48 metre band we, we used to have agreements amongst ourselves as to who would come on when um, so you'd have EMR one week you'd have Atlanta another week you'd have Empire Radio another week uh, I can't remember. There was a full station in the network, and so we didn't cause interference to each other, and so that we could um, sort of maximise the audience and not take uh, and not steal listeners. Then um, uh, it was in our everybody's interest to uh, to organise a broadcast that way. So that, that worked out pretty well.
1: Yeah. So did you, uh, did, you did you ever get raided on uh,
0: Empire? Not on Empire. they not on shortwave. No. Um, we, um, we always operated from around the Birmingham area. We had about four locations, uh, but because it was a big old valve transmitter, it needed mains power, so we tended to use um, uh, houses which had long back gardens to, uh, to put the aerial up, uh, and we always had a system of, of lookouts, uh, but, but we never had, had any problems. It wasn't until later we moved to FM that we started seeing the authorities.
1: Yeah, they never seemed to be that worried about shortwave for one reason or another. No, they
0: were. It it wasn't causing any interference to anybody and um, it was uh, hard to track down. So, generally speaking, uh, uh, shortwave pilots were left to get on with it. As long as you didn't abuse it and try and go on the air 24 hours a day or something like that, I'm sure then there would be uh, some backlash. But if you're only on the air for two or three hours a month... People aren't
1: going to bother with that. No, I I, I think you're probably right. I think their their limited resources are going to be looking at the FM stations and the stations yeah. that are either controversial or making money. I think is the way they seem you to do it anyway, or the ones that have been complained about from the from the ILR stations, yeah, which is what happened right. with Radio yeah. Jackie in the end. Um, okay, so so Empire Radio comes to an end in 1980. What what's your next move? Uh,
0: well, then. Um, we sort of split into, into two because it was very much Keith Rogers and myself who ran Empire Radio. And we both decided at that, that time it would be nice to get into local radio because uh, people may listen more, for exactly the same reasons as, as you explained. People on shortwave will only listen for a few minutes at a time just to get a QSL card and then they'd go away. So we thought we might be able to get uh, a better audience by uh, by doing local. Um, so Keith Waters was based over in the Black Country. I was based in Birmingham. So so we we sort of went our separate ways, but stayed very good friends. Um, he he went on AM. Uh, I decided to to go on FM, and there were there were various reasons why why we chose different paths. he he, he basically had more locations where he could put up a. A medium wave area which is very long uh I didn't have access to those sort of locations so i uh i stuck poles out of um, blocks of flats and went onto the roof of blocks of flats and things like that and, and put the uh the FM area up it was easier to do that so so that was it so in in nineteen eighty one we uh we both launched our own uh, Um, station Sounds alternative was uh, Keith's station on uh, uh, AM, and my station was EST on FM. And and what did EST stand for? Uh, It actually stood... If you pushed us, we would tell you, but it was a bit like it it didn't mean anything, but it was actually electronic sound transmission, uh, which is a bit bit long-winded, which is why it got abbreviated to est because we didn't want to call it radio or something because everything in those days was brmb radio or beacon radio or capital radio thing so we didn't want to use the word radio we, we were trying to be different and um, this was the early 80s when sort of things were going a bit y and, and people experimenting musically with electronics uh so we thought it was a modern sort of title, I and mean, we we weren't a radio broadcast we were a sound transmission to be posh so so we just became EST.
1: That seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, same reason the guys at Alice's restaurant decided to call their station. that yeah. was to be a b- yeah, little bit different and, uh, and and to show some imagination, I think is is the best way exactly. to describe that okay yeah. so so EST's on the air. Um, what kind of music format are you playing?
0: uh rock. Uh quite quite mainstream, you know, Deep, Deep Purple, uh Led Zeppelin, like to promote local bands like Magnum, uh from the early days. So so yes, it was it was ma- it was mainstream rock. Uh it was un- again, it was only three hours a week on, on a Sunday morning. Um it started off on ninety-four point three Fm uh and then eventually moved up to uh, up to one oh three Fm before Beacon stole that frequency. So, uh, um, Yeah, we, we, we tried different frequencies out and um, well, we found it wasn't so much the frequency that made the difference, it was the area you know, the, the better the location. The, the, that, that, that was a downfall in a way of, of an FM hobby pilot that, w- that we didn't always have a consistent signal going out. So at some weeks it would cover virtually the whole of Birmingham and other weeks it would only cover a small suburb of the city, depending on what location we were transmitting from. I think uh, I think,
1: yeah. I think uh, all pirates had similar problems, to be honest, because obviously you've got to yeah. shuffle around a bit. And, uh, I mean, I, I was on medium wave f- for that whole period from sort of um, late 1980 right through to 84. Um, mm-hmm. And mm. uh, we, we used, well, certainly for the first two and a half, three years, we used exclusively used uh, field sites, never used houses, um, and used to run yeah. with car batteries. But... Um, uh the last probably the last 6 to 8 months uh I managed to persuade someone to let me use their house and that that was much easier we managed to get a much more powerful rig and ran it, ran it off the mains obviously yeah and that was much easier but, but most of the people I know in london on medium wave were certainly um field location setups uh, a few had yeah. a few used um houses but the the thing was there was so many stations and the um you know, whether it was the dti or the post office or whoever it was at the time were always you know quite often out so you know you had to be extremely careful um and, and raids were quite regular for a lot of us you know certainly people like radio jackie got raided all the time um, yeah, and then the, then yeah. a great big period where they didn't get raided at all. But that that's a if you, if you want to know about that story, uh, Nick Catford episode two. Listen to that. That's the one. <laughs> so um, so okay. So you're on FM. You're playing rock, uh, like you say. You're using tabloids and stuff. Now I'm I'm quite intrigued by this because you didn't have an engineer as such, did you? You you bought all the equipment in. Um, we
0: did. We did. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, I mean, were you getting it from someone in London or someone local in Birmingham or how did that work?
0: Uh, yeah, the, um, the FM rigs, we, we only had two of them, I think. They were both made, um, I can't remember the guy's name offhand, but they were made down in Kent by different people. But, but yes, yeah, they both came from, from the southeast, from the London area. We had to go down to Kent to pick them up on each occasion.
1: Well, off, off the top of my head, I can think of two very prominent stations down in Kent, so uh, it could it could have been one, one of them, or either of them, or both of them. <laughs> which yeah. are Radio North Kent, which was quite a regular thing, and uh, Radio yeah, Telstar I'm, South.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm certain the first transmitter did come from Radio North Kent. Yeah, it doesn't um, me. I'm not sure that the second one did, but I, can't, I honestly can't remember now. That's part of my memory that's that's faded with with 20 years because because didn 't keep records in those days for, for security reasons so I've never took photos of the rig which is stupid now uh, and I never once uh, w- I'd collected a rig um, I tended to um, to destroy the address so that if we were ever, ever raided people would never be able to trace anything
1: no no and I can get that certainly certainly thinking about you know that period I think we were all a little well I don't know some of us were security cultures. I know people who didn't care. <laughs> uh, yeah. And certainly during this podcast, I have found that people now are quite happy to talk about what they did. Um, you know I, I've done you know, this is uh, you know well over 20 episodes now and most people are quite happy to say where they got their equipment from and who built it and so on and so forth certainly in London we had all my rigs were built by one person and he was the guy who built the rigs for Alice's Restaurant and Phoenix Radio and right, uh, yeah. and for a, a number of other stations as well and ended up doing, doing the, the thing stuff in Birmingham, we, we
0: just didn't have the contacts because there was no internet then so it was, it was very hard to find who was it was building transmitters so um we we ended up I, you could look in exchange and mart uh and i think i think we bought um we bought some some transmitting t- or, or something oh in Virto, i think it was we bought for exchange and mart uh because we didn't know where to get one from and then the the yeah. other times we, we, we went down to london listened to the stations that we were on and then contacted the people and uh I remember having a, a, a very helpful visit to uh, to Thameside Radio. They they gave us the most probably the most information and pointers.
1: Yeah, Thameside um, Thameside had a great reputation. They were very very good at what they did. Uh, they yes. had the best transmission site in London. I uh, yes. used to run it from um, uh, Trellick Tower, which at that the time was the tallest residential tower block in Europe. Uh, I think it was 26 Gosh. stories. I can't remember now. Still there. Yeah. It's, a, it's a grade one listed building that can't be knocked down. Um and yeah. they used to run it from there. And I know a couple of other stations tried to go up there and they went, Nope, this is ours. <laughs> this is where yeah. we we'll stay. But the the signal was fa- I mean, I lived over in Essex and I could hear them perfectly well. Um and the programs yes, are fantastic. very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh th- there is in the Facebook group there is there is people from Thameside um Dave Birdman is certainly one of, one of the people who I'm, I'm trying to get mm. on the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. but he, he's proving to be a bit bit elusive. Um, but yeah, the guys from Thameside w- were really, really good people and I've only heard good things about them, uh, to be honest. Yes, yeah,
0: they were great. They were great. Yeah.
1: That's yeah. an interesting thing. You come down here, you listen to a station and get in contact with them. You know, it, it, it's quite a commitment that to come all the way down to London and then sit there and go, right, okay. Yeah,
0: it was the only way to do it because we just didn't know how to, how to get hold of equipment and who, to talk to otherwise yeah Pre, pre-internet
1: days it was much harder yeah I mean uh, you know I, I, as you know I, I talked to a lot of the people from the London scene and everybody seemed to know someone and there was a lot of rig builders there were people there out there doing really yeah. good medium wave rigs you know I spoke to Luke the Duke who used to run Radio City uh, the rock and roll pirate not run it but he mm. was a big big part of it but he was their transmitter engineer he also did stuff for DBC he also did stuff for Breakfast Pirate Radio you know he, he, was, he was a prolific rig builder Um and as yeah. I said martin from alice's did a lot of stuff ended up doing the rigs for kiss um and also then worked with them when they became legal as well so you know there was a lot of these people around that episode one of these podcasts is a guy called piers easton who is probably the most the best known fm rig builder of the period mm. um and still works in radio now and uh, you know again someone who's quite happy to, to talk about what he did he's, he's been interviewed on if you look on YouTube and just put in Piers Easton or Pirate Radio you'll see him being yeah. interviewed by various people uh, building rigs he was one of the original um, owners of Kiss FM actually so uh, oh yeah. yes yeah, yeah, and used to, London Greek Radio and loads of others. So, no, I'm really interested in in, in this because I spoke to um, Steve Leland from Radio Jackie North and Merseyland Alternative Radio and stuff, and they actually bought their first rig from Nick Catford in London. And Nick right. came up to Liverpool and delivered it. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, because yeah. it's the same I as you. See. There was no pirate history there, no... Um, Mm. Um, sort of infrastructure of pirate radio. Uh, so they had to buy their rigs in. I, I, I think ultimately, they, you know, they got people who could build them. So uh, EST is on the air playing rock music. How long were you on the air for with that from, from Birmingham? And, and did you get the visit?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, in, in the end, it closed down because of um, what we described as heavy local interference. Um <laughs> we managed i was quite proud that we did we we did a year without any interruptions at all that so we did 54 weeks i think from july um middle of july 81 through until late july 82 and then we had our first raid um and we were off the air for a little while um and then we came back, and um, I think we got raided three times in total, but we prevented a lot of raids by closing down early because we had a lookout system, and uh, when you saw somebody coming, you just switched off, and there was nothing they could do. But but they caught us red-handed, certainly twice, once we were broadcasting the open air, and and they just sort of swooped out of nowhere. Um and got us. And the other time we were actually broadcasting from a pub, uh, and they turned up with a search warrant. We weren't going li- to let them in, uh, but they'd got the um, DTI had got police officers with them with a with a search warrant to come in, so we couldn't. I mean, I, I was never going to, uh, to to make a make a make a fuss or uh, um, be violent or anything. So if, if they wanted the stuff, I'd just say, okay, well. If it's legal, you can take it. So they showed me a search warrant and came in. And it was, uh, it was quite funny because the DTI guys were quite nasty, really, and um, uh, didn't want to cooperate at all. Uh, the policeman thought it was quite, uh, quite funny. And I mean, at one point, the pl- policeman turned to me and he said, um, I suppose you do this quite often. Uh, and I just said, uh, oh, no, no, it's actually the first time I've ever been on a broadcast. I just happened to be here this week. And he just laughed and said, oh, I thought that's what you were going to say. But but, but police, yeah, I've got, I've never had any problem with the police. It was always a DTI who got vicious and nasty.
1: And was it the same people? Did Was there a Birmingham group of, of yeah, DTI there guys?
0: There, there was a group of about four of them who uh, who, who, were, who were pretty nasty. And what, what On one occasion... Um, they must have done a bit of homework uh, and they started following me and they followed me I was aware of it when I got a bus at the top of the road um, and I was walking down to, to the house I was still living with my parents then and um, I was aware of these two people behind me uh, and I didn't want to turn around to see who it was but I, I just sensed who it was Anyway, I got to the house. and uh, Dad was still at work. Mom, mom was home. So I, I let myself in, ran up, ran up to my bedroom, had a look out of the window, and immediately saw these, these two guys and recognised them. And, and they actually walked down, just walking down the drive. So I shouted down to mom. I said, you're going to get two visitors at the door now. Um, tell them I'm not in. So mom... Be, be, being mom did, did exactly that they rang the doorbell she opened the door and said they, they asked for me by name so they knew who I was they used my real name uh, and uh, she just said oh he's not in well the, 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 they knew that was a lie because they'd seen me come in the house but there was nothing they could do about it um, they left a business card and asked me to, to contact them so uh, I thought well I might as well well, do it. I've got, I've got nothing to lose. So uh, uh, I phoned up Bruce Davis uh, a day or two later and offered to meet with him, but in a public place. I said I wasn't prepared to meet at his office and I wasn't prepared to meet at my house. I said, we can meet in a pub somewhere. Um, and I said, I'll have a witness with me who will record the conversation. Uh, and with that, he, uh, he just said, uh, no, thank you. And he put the phone down. So that, that was, I've never heard of him
1: again after that. Well, that's a so great, yeah. that's a fantastic story. I've never heard of that happening. Uh, no, I, no. I, I, I do know the guys at Radio Jack who did used to ring up um, one of the DTI guys. Are you coming out tonight And or today? And you go, no, that'd be that. Um, the, the, again, there was a mixture, I think. Some of them were quite... Um, how should we say, verbose and aggressive about what they did. Others, yes. it was a job and they just did it as yeah, exactly. a job.
0: And yeah. I've heard loads,
1: um, of, loads of stories about the police the as well. In Birmingham,
0: there was only, there was only the one Bruce Davidson seemed to be particularly nasty. The rest were, uh, were, were pretty much okay about
1: everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, I, I think some of them... Uh, took it personally and some of them just it was just a job yeah, that's the way I've heard lots of stories about the police though saying oh yeah um, do you know what play me a record <laughs> and, and this sort of stuff and uh, you know brilliant stories about a friend of mine when the police turned up I just thought the whole thing was almost a joke uh, it was ridiculous you know but um, what was the Birmingham scene like at that time were there many stations on in the early 80s
0: um, no no, they weren't. Uh, we, we, we were one of the first. Um, um, we didn't really have any contact with anybody else. But there were a couple of of people who, who would come up, Radio Free Birmingham, who'd come up occasionally, maybe on bank holidays or something like that, and and do a broadcast. Um, but there were no regular stations at all uh, until the early 80s when you started getting the the black music stations in particular. Uh, uh, coming up um, but I mean their music and, and ours was so so different we didn 't really have much to do with one another um, we knew, we, all, we all knew who who we were, but we didn 't really really talk um, and that was partly deliberate because uh, neither of us. Uh, wanted to reveal too much because if you if you if you started knowing too much about another person's operations, then the authorities could tap you for information. So so I didn't actually want to know what was going on at any other station and I wouldn't tell any any other station what was going on with us.
1: Yeah, what well, you don't so, know you can't tell, can you?
0: Exactly. It was just a privacy thing really. Um it, it, it might it, it sounded a bit unfriendly because we just had nothing to do with anybody else. And it wasn't because we were being arrogant. It's just that A, we had no interest because they were black stations and it didn't appeal to us at all. But secondly, yes, as as you say, what you don't know, you can't can't say. So it's much better if you keep these things uh, to yourselves and keep it private.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's sort of the same development that happens in London. You know, the dance music stations really started to take over in the mid-'80s, you know, with with a big what I call the Super Pirates, Kiss FM, yes. Horizons, Solar, Invicta was still kicking around, um, uh, um, LWR. You know, the, these were big operations um, yep. and of course, you know, uh, had huge audiences as well. Um, and I, I think the similar thing happened in Birmingham, um, where you know, where these big dance stations came along. But they were probably, yes. they were probably, you know, helped out a lot by the stations in London, I would imagine, um, because there was also money were, in it as well.
0: Yeah, Yes, yes, they, they, they did start making money. Um, but that was sort of after our time. as EST finally fizzled out in 84. It had, it had struggled on for the last year um, until in the end we were just virtually forced to give up because they were hounding us every week. So I dropped out of the radio scene in, in 84. And that was the, the time... When the big super pirates were just starting and it was starting to become commercial, um, and were they st- really...
1: were they becoming twenty four so hours were they becoming twenty four yeah, hours a day as well?
0: Yeah, yeah, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd be would FM, would be that i O L I can't remember the names now. It's, uh, they're all, they're all on the website somewhere. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I've, so I've,
1: I've been having a look at the Pirate Archive website.
0: Yes, yes, I to the guys at the all Pirate all Archive. That's that's a pretty good uh, and accurate. Um, Website that is, because um, the guy who runs it verifies information before he puts it up, so uh, yeah, and asks people for the original, uh, original information, not not just hearsay, but it's based on, um on undocumented evidence as much as possible. Yeah, um, yeah. I, and things that were happening at
1: the time. Yeah, I, I, I'm in touch with him and, and uh, he lets me use clips off there for, for the various podcasts yeah. that I do with the clips in them. Um, yeah. Okay, one little thing I did want to talk about before, before we move on to the next thing is um, the royal wedding. Because I don't know if you know, but Alice's Restaurant did their first ever broadcast during the royal wedding it was a royal wedding and then, alternative and
0: they went live uh, uh, all there I didn't know it was their first broadcast it was their yeah. first
1: proper Alice's yeah. Restaurant broadcast and it's quite interesting that you both because you did the same thing didn't you created we an alternative did,
0: we, we started three weeks early we, our very first broadcast of EST was on the 4th of July which we renamed Birmingham Independence Day instead of American Independence Day so the 4th of July became Birmingham Independence Day we, we particularly chose that to launch um we actually had um, an aerial uh, hidden in trees in the Clent Hills for that broadcast over overlooking the whole of Birmingham as a good location. Yeah, for those of um, you who we- don't
1: know Birmingham, the Clent Hills are to the south of the city, but dominate think- that whole area there. And I think, isn't that where the uh, BBC have got their Birmingham transmitters at the Clent Hills?
0: Uh, they've got they've got a relay transmitters that sort are of cleaned, Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it is a good location, but it does get rather crowded up there, uh, particularly on a Sunday morning on a nice summer's day. You'll get lots of visitors exploring around, which is uh, not uh, not so good. Um, but but you do have a good lookout system there because you can see anybody coming up the hill, so you've got plenty of time yep. to to react.
1: Excellent. Yeah. So no, sorry, so but... you, so you did the broadcast yeah, on anyway, the Royal so, wedding,
0: yeah. Yeah, so so we we did our first broadcast on the 4th of July. So the Royal wedding came on the 29th of July. Um which was midweek, a Wednesday. Um we decided to to broadcast live all day because we thought oh sorry, no no one's going to um, uh, raid us on on a day like that. Um but we we figured that there could be a potential audience cuz not everybody wants to watch the Royal Wedding, so we thought oh, that'd be a good uh, place, guys. But the location was actually in Erdington in North Birmingham, uh, the roof of a house, which was quite, quite helpful. It was just a overlooking Gravelly Hill Interchange on the M6. Um, it was reasonably good, but, but not, not as high as a tower block, uh, so the signal didn't get out probably that. That well, but the fact that we were on the air live all day from i think ten in the morning until about eight in the evening um it did generate quite a um, quite a response um and we it it helped because we sort of bribed people to um to phone in and to and to write in uh by by offering prizes to everybody who contacted us <laughs> so, uh, we ended up giving out we had a load of these get a lot of, stuff um, records and from promotions companies and whatever. So I had a load of records to send out. So yes, it cost me the postage, but it wasn't so bad in those days. But I ended up sending out sixty or seventy records, I think, as a result of that uh, broadcast. Um,
1: it's a so nice, it a bit of bribery to get people to contact you.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes, it was indeed. And, and,
1: am I right in thinking, Gravelly Hill? That's Spaghetti Junction, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. just for people yeah. who people who, who who don't live in the area. Um, yeah. you will know. People will notice Spaghetti Junction, <laughs> and and there is quite yeah, a big yeah. hill on one side of that. So I assume you are at the top there of that is. hill. Yes, yes, we, we
0: were towards that hill, but but not on the top of it. We we're sort of going up
1: the hill. Yeah, they've probably so, got a very nice signal at Villa Park. I should imagine. Yeah. yeah. That's
0: it. So good, Albert. We we did have a technical problems that day because we we couldn't get rid of the mains hum on the equipment because we'd never tried doing anything live before. So when we plugged everything in, there was obviously uh, I an mean, impedance mismatch somewhere, and uh, we spent most of the day playing around with choke coils and rerouting cables, trying to get rid of the uh, the hum. So the the audio quality was was not the uh, not the best ever, but. Nevertheless, it, it got out and it got a response, so absolutely, it was good for them, worth doing.
1: You've got listeners, that's the important thing.
0: Exactly, exactly, yeah.
1: Okay, so, right, so we'll move back forward again now. <laughs> so, um, after all that, what happens next? So, uh, EST closes down, what's the next thing that you do?
0: Uh, EST closed down, and so did Sounds Alternative, um, the medium wave station, we, we both closed around about the same time, as I recall, sometime in 84. Um, and to to be honest, not much happened then on the radio front. In, in the latter days, because we'd always, always suffered with lack of engineering capacity, as I've said, but in the, in the latter days of EST, of um, we started getting uh, regular letters from one listener um, and turned out that he he was quite technically talked to us in these letters about technical things, and I thought, Oh, no, this guy could be useful to us. So, once I sort of sussed him out a little bit and uh, and felt I could trust him, um, uh, I invited him out for a drink. I so thought, I'm not going to invite him to a broadcast and, and reveal our, our locations at this stage, but so I thought, I'll have a drink with him in a pub. So, um uh, so I did, and that turned out to be a guy by the name of Tim Shepard, Tim Scrimshaw is his real name, um, and he joined us then as engineer, he, he turned out he was a radio ham, and uh, he, he got a bit of knowledge, so he helped us quite a bit on the technical side in the, in the latter months of of the broadcasts. Uh, but he, was, he was a young lad, he was younger than the rest of us. Um, and not far, not long out of university. Uh, and um, about 76, he, um, we, we became good friends. About 76, he uh, decided to have a gap year from university. So we were talking about that. I said, What are you going to do? And, and he said, uh, "He said, I think I'm, I might go and work on a kibbutz. That was the big thing to do in Israel in those days. So I said, Oh, why, why not join the, the Voice of Peace? Uh, radio station and he didn't know anything about it um, so I got out all my old radio magazines monitor and script and goodness knows what and I gave them to him and said look loads of stuff about the voice of peace in here uh, study it and uh, see, see if you're interested in it I said I think you'd be very good then and I'm sure they always need people so um, long story short he ended up going out to the voice of peace uh, initially as an engineer but but very soon proved himself as a very competent presenter as well. So he went out in '86, and in '87 they were they were short of staff. So Tim uh, mentioned my name to AB Nathan, the the owner of the peace ship, uh, and I got a call from Israel from AB uh, saying, "Would you like to come out to the peace ship?" Um, <laughs> I I didn't know what to say to be honest. The call came came through uh august bank holiday 87 i had the call saying come back the water Peace. well i would got a a regular but boring council job but i wasn't prepared to just jack it in for uh to go out to a pirate ship but on the other hand i knew that if i didn't go I'd, I'd regret it for the rest of my life so i've got a pretty good boss at work uh, and i said can i take all my leave in one go and just go off and I'll come back when I, when I can get back. I said, I don't know how long I'll be away. I said, I, I should be back in about three weeks. So um, so he said, yeah, just go for it. So, um, so in, it took about six weeks to get everything together because I did to organise leave from work and put my uh, flight tickets and everything because the, um, the way it worked in those days basically is a, you paid for your ticket to get there. And as long as you got there and, and did a stint on the ship, they they repaid you your expenses. So um so I went out there uh and I did only do three weeks because I felt I, I loved it but I felt I had to come back. So um when when my first shore leave was due, uh it was twenty days I was on the ship to be precise. So when when the first shore leave was due I made my excuses. And uh, headed back to England and picked up my old old job, which was a bit boring, but that that was it. Um, but one of the people I'd met on um, I'd met on the Voice of Peace was a guy called Dave Asher, who then went on to work on Radio Caroline. you will see. And the same thing happened again two years later in '89. Uh, I had another phone call this time from Dave Asher saying. We're, we're a bit short of staff on the Ross Revenge. How would you like to come out to the North Sea? <laughs> again, my answer was the same, you know. well, uh, I mean, I've already done my bit of offshore broadcasting. I've got it out of my system. I don't really want to – I'd like to do any more, but I'm I'm not prepared to, to jack in my job for it. But in the end, I did the same. Again, I, I still had the same boss at work. So I said to him, look, it's happened again. Can I, can I go and join Radio Caroline? Yeah, go off, enjoy yourself. So, um, so I went off and uh, did again three weeks on the on the Ross Revenge uh, over uh, Christmas '89 into New Year 1990, uh, and then I came back uh, January 1990 and and um, resumed my um, my normal day job, uh, and 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 that was it. And through, through the seventies, I was involved in. A few different RSL stations in uh, in Birmingham, so I kept my hand in that way. But then, one way for one reason or another, '97, I I dropped out of radio completely. Um, partly because I came carer for my father, who was elderly by that point and needed care, and I was trying to care care for him and hold down my full time job with the council. So so radio got pushed out. And in fact, I didn't do anything for 20 years. It wasn't until uh, 2017 that uh, that I got involved once again. And um, that led on to where I am now in, um, in the middle of nowhere. In just doing a bit of uh, work on Radio Seagulls. And that, that's really my life.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. You've you've given me a tonne of stuff there. Too, <laughs> so, much. So, too no, much. No, 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 not at all. What,
0: what were you doing on The Voice of Peace, presenting shows? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, on the voice piece, um, I, I joined as a, as a presenter, um, and you get experience of all sorts of different shows. That, that they they start you off, um, usually just to get used to the equipment because there's no chance to practice because the station's on the air twenty four seven. You can't sort of go and have a dabble in the studio before going on air. So what what they did is. Each evening they had what they called um, uh, a Hebrew hour where you just played an hour back-to-back of Hebrew records. So you just sat in the studio with a pile of records and they said, those are the Hebrew records, just just play one track after another. So so that's what I did. But it just gets you used to handling the gear and the equipment. Um, and you do that for a couple of days. Um, and then you get allocated a... a a programme. So during the three weeks that I was on board, um I think I did I did every program except the morning show. I did the afternoon show, uh did late night show, I did the overnight show and I did the breakfast show on one occasion. So so yes, you you, you rotate round and do a bit in in every slot. Uh but but that was um that was really good and my My one claim to fame of working on the peace ship is that I was actually mentioned in the uh, Israeli parliament in the Knesset um, because I was there at a very fortunate time when the um, Col Israel, the state broadcaster, um, was on strike. Uh, So they went on strike for about five days and didn't have any programs going out. So we basically picked up the whole audience. Um, so we, we had a massive audience in, um, in Israel and, and the surrounding area, but it is in particular. And, um, very suddenly, it literally happened we'd, within hours of Collingwood going on strike. Um, the boss negotiated all these advertising deals, knowing that we'd got a big audience with all these very big names, um, and we had all these adverts come out to the ship. Uh, people like British Airways, Lao, uh, Sheraton Hotels, uh, I think Hershey Chocolate, all you know some, some very big corporations placed adverts, and we were running at one point up to 20 minutes of adverts an hour. Uh, on, on the station, which was very good for finances, but not very good for programs. <laughs> I uh, can imagine. But it, but it was great. Um, but in Israel, because of the tensions, which is, is a, nothing has changed really to the same today. People are news hungry. They're always tuning to, to the news. But, but because the state broadcaster was on strike, there, there was no official news. So the message came out from the office um, can you can you run a sort of limited news service? Well, it was very, very difficult. So I actually volunteered to do it, uh, to gather the news. Uh, and all, all we did, it was just, um, I think it was twice, maybe three times a day, m- morning, noon and night. I'm not sure we did m- noon, actually. I think it was just morning and night. We just ran a, a short roundup of world news which i compiled from bbc world service and voice of america they were about the only things you could you could easily pick up on the ship um so so i used to listen and then transcribe it uh tried to do it very very carefully because i didn't want to put a, a slant or a bias on it i just reported it exactly as bbc or voice of america had done it and then it got read out i, I I was never very good as a newsreader. I think I did it once, but I was stumbling and blurting all the way through it. So they got one of the more experienced guys to actually be the newsreader, and I just wrote the scripts out. Uh, and we, it went very well. I, I thought we were doing a, a very good job. But after about the third day, um message came out from the office on land saying, you have to stop newscasts. I thought, why, why do you have to stop this? Um... Because it's been raised in the Israeli Parliament that this pirate radio station is is putting out news and it's not controlled by the media, and we can't have this happening, so you you have to have to stop the news. so we stopped the news. I think the strike ended the next day anyway, so it didn't make a lot of difference All right. uh, but we were actually instructed by the Israeli Parliament they said. They didn't name me by name, but they said the the guy who's putting the news together. You must tell him to stop it. So, so that came to me saying, "Don't don't do it," and because it was a very interesting situation with the voice because although officially it was a a pirate radio ship, uh, actually it was very much supported by the uh, Israeli government and. I remember going up onto the uh, onto the bridge one day and looking at the radar, and we were actually just 2.4 miles from the coast. I mean, you could see the skyline of um, Tel Aviv easily. You know, and it looked like it was the bottom of the garden, really. Um, but, but we were certainly very close. So we were 2.4 miles. We were inside territorial limits, and that was. That was deliberate because if we're inside territorial limits, we were entitled to protection from the Israeli Navy, from their gunboats. If we went outside territorial limits, we we didn't get any protection, uh, and we could have been attacked by any of the other powers in the Middle East, uh, you know, in a being an unstable area, you know, um, Lebanon or Syria or somebody could have could have come and uh, and been nasty. So, although technically we were a free station, we weren't, we were under the um, protection of, of Israel, um, the, the whole time, and um, unofficially. Uh, so okay. That, that was the voice of
1: peace. Yeah, and, and uh, very quickly, the Caroline thing, uh, it, obviously towards the end of the time on the Ross Revenge, uh, I have heard stories and I've read stuff that, uh, it wasn't in a great state around that time, sort of 89, no. 90. Um, I mean, the ship, the um, where did, the ship first, first of all, where did,
0: how did you get onto the ship? Where did you go from? Well, I went from Ramsgate on a fishing trawler with uh, uh, Dave Turner, Dave the Fisher. Dave the Fish that, but yes. sadly he died, so yeah, uh, involved. Of, again, the authorities knew what was going on because uh, over the over a period of two or three years, he 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 ran hundreds of trips out to the uh, to the Ross Revenge. Uh, so he took uh, took four of us out. I think it was all, it was all sort of cloaking. And dagger I, I was told to take a train to I think it was Whipstable and then I was met at Whipstable Station and taken to somebody 's flat and put up overnight in their flat and then the next day uh, we went down to Ramsgate and met this fisherman uh, and then he said well i 'm going to sail tonight, so come back tonight so we uh, we went back to the harbour in the in the evening and uh, and went out to uh, Went out on his fishing boat to, to the Ross Revenge. And yeah, I mean, I'd seen the ship three or four years earlier because I did an anorak boat ships out in 83 and 84, 84 and 85. Uh, and the ship was quite newly out of uh, Spain in those days and all looked nicely uh, maintained and w- well painted. And there was plenty of money around from the Dutch side of the operation. So it was it was being run well. but by the time I got out there in 89 they'd had the raid in August of 89 when the Dutch and the British authorities uh, came on board and uh, forcibly removed a lot of the equipment and smashed up equipment Um, so it was only about six weeks before I went out that the station actually got back on the air with a temporary makeshift aerial that that was hanging up because we'd already lost the mast by that point as well because the uh, the big three hundred foot mast had come down a couple of years earlier, uh, so so there wasn't much left to hang the uh, the aerial from. But we we went on there. We were when I got there, we were probably only running three or four kilowatts, so it wasn't wasn't very powerful at all. And the conditions on board were were quite poor. Bro. The ship looked a bit sordid. Obviously hadn't had much maintenance, been on it for for some time, and uh, it was it was just looking very very tired. Um but I, I was quite lucky because I was there over Christmas. They made made a bit of an effort and the support group on land sent us out a massive big turkey, which we had on, on Christmas Day, and we had lots of cake and cabbage selection boxes and goodness knows what. So so we, we ate very well. But shortly after I left conditions deteriorated further. Um and food was rationed and water was rationed and it wasn't very nice at all. So, so I was quite lucky, although it wasn't great when I was there. Uh, it was certainly better than it was for the, for the people who stayed on after me. Uh, so I, I can't complain. I got the experience in without any, any problems.
1: Well, you can always say I was on Radio Caroline.
0: Exactly. And, and it's surprising if, even now, Although well, I was only there for three weeks. It, it still opens doors. And, and I think the only reason I got onto Seagull is because of, of that really, because I was doing a broadcast from um, Rego Mi Amigo, uh, from the light ship in Harwich. Uh, and I only, I only got onto Harwich uh, because of my connections with Caroline. Um, I managed to wangle my way on, on the broadcast there. And it was through doing that broadcast that brought me into, t- into contact with the Dutch people behind Seagull. So they then said, oh, come and join Seagull. So uh, so I did. But had it not been for the Caroline connection, I, I would probably never have been any more radio. I, I finished in 97 and... As I say, I didn't do anything until 2017, but that wouldn't have come about without the Caroline connection. So I probably wouldn't be doing anything in radio now without that.
1: So since 2017, you've been doing programmes for Seagull. Uh, When can we
0: hear you on that? Um, At the moment, UK time. It's Tuesday lunchtime, uh, midday till 2pm every Tuesday. It's just a two-hour show. Uh, And it's repeated 12 hours later, because the way Seagull is structured, uh, it's on a rolling 12-hour Pattern. So uh, the shows go out. My show goes out twelve till two in the afternoon, and then midnight till till two am uh, on a Wednesday morning.
1: Seems uh, quite a sensible uh, way to do programming, to be honest.
0: Yeah, yeah, it spreads it out. Because um, daytimes we're uh, we're only on the internet, so it, it is purely. Um, streaming from radioSeagull.com, and that's the way to listen. But evenings and overnights, um, Seagull programs can be heard via Carillion Wellbeing Radio in Leicestershire. They relay us overnight. Yeah. So that goes out on 1476 kilohertz. And there's a similar arrangement in the Northern and Netherlands around the Harlingen area where the Seagull ship is. Um, the programmes go out there on 747 kilohertz overnight. So it's actually nice that we've got a couple of AM frequencies, even though they're relatively low power. But, but 1476 from uh, Colesville in Leicestershire uh, gets out surprisingly well. You know, I can get it... In, here in Birmingham without too, too much difficulty.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, ha- I have heard it. I certainly heard it when I was in Northamptonshire. Um, yeah. I've never yeah. never really tried here. Um, mm. but I, I'm, I'm in Shropshire now, so... This has been really, really good. <laughs> I've loved, loved hearing all about the, the Birmingham things that you've done and the shortwave and um, the old time on The Voice of Peace in Caroline, which I know people will be interested in as well. So you're only doing Seagull now radio-wise... Any plans for anything else in the future?
0: No, I'm sort of pretty much retired. Um, having said that, I've, I may be doing some shows from the Lightship in, in Harwich again. They, they are resurrecting Radio Mi Amigo uh, there, um, and they've asked me to do some some programmes. I'm actually in the process of pre-recording a few shows for them at the moment. Oh, right. Uh, the, the the idea with, with that station is that um, it will it will be 24-7 and it, it will have a load of programs, uh, of, a load of one-hour shows on the uh, server and each hour the server would sort of randomly decide which show to put out. You could find that your, your show goes out twice in a 24-hour period or it might only go out Twice in a week, but shows will rotate and get repeated. And but what they want is to have enough shows located uh, uploaded to the server so that it it doesn't repeat too often. Uh, and, but that follows a format of sixties and seventies music. Um, and so, so you record separate shows for the daytime service and separate shows for the nighttime service. Um, and day- daytime is very much commercial with so the pop music from the sixties and seventies, and uh, overnight is much more contemporary album format right. uh, and sort of rock music focusing much more on the on the seventies. So that's that's sort of quite interesting, uh, and I think that they want to try and and give this a go and use it to promote the lightship and then use the lightship in turn to promote the radio station and just build up a, a bit of a following uh, with a long-term plan of applying for some proper licences, DAB or whatever whatever becomes available, maybe AM in, uh, in the UK. Yeah, so, yeah. And launch it on a proper commercial footing, but that yeah, is a bit further down the line, isn't it? it's probably two or three years down the line. Yeah, I get that. Uh, but, uh, okay. So the- what's your space.
1: <laughs> I always finish off with a couple of questions. And the first one I want to ask you, the first of, of the last questions, for the one of a better phrase, is what is your proudest moment in Pirate Radio?
0: In Pirate Radio? Well, I think it goes back to the days of Empire Radio, because that, those were my very formative years. And it was great working with a couple of guys, uh, Keith Rogers, i I say, and the other... Uh, person on the station was was Albert Hall, um, as he was known as, uh, quite a character, but they really pushed the boundaries. Um, we did a lot of uh, shows at so Mixing Music Company. I mean, when I started, my very first show on Empire Radio was absolutely crap. It was just a normal music show. And these other guys were coming up with great production ideas. Albert Hall was Mixing um, reel-to-reel tapes and splicing them, and playing them backwards, and doing all sorts of weird, weird effects, and um, chopping up interviews and making them sound silly and and whatever. And uh, Keith Rogers was was doing a lot of comedy extracts from the years of Tony Hancock and uh, a lot of fifties radio comedy. He'd in, insert in of that, and I thought, wow, these these guys. Are are so far ahead of me, it really forced me to up my game. So so I started playing around with a tape recorder and a splicer, and after a few months, I was I was quite getting quite proficient. And I think the the, the latter shows I did on Empire Radio, I think were the best radio today that I've, I've ever done there's no one moment but I'd say the the last few last say half dozen broadcasts we ever did on Empire radio and again when we came back and celebrated our 45th birthday in 2017 I put a lot of effort into just one hour in fact it took me a day of playing around in the studio just to record one hour program but I think that stands out as the best radio show i've I've ever done so Empire radio has is, is always been special to me and that that's those are my my best moments. Okay, and finally, who out of all the people you've met during
1: Pirate Radio do you most admire? Who's been your biggest influence
0: within Pirate Radio itself? No one person within Pirate, other than our own crowd. I was just talking about Keith Rogers and Albert Hall. They they pushed me on to higher limits, and they um, they're, they're people I very much admire. Uh, apart from that, there were. Just the people I used to go and listen to in London, the people at Chemside Radio, at Radio Jackie, uh, they were very professional broadcasters. And also up in Manchester when I went to, to visit um, uh, Andromeda Independent Radio, Air, which, which used to broadcast from the Pennines. And the guys there were very helpful and, and very nice as well. So I always admired people who could, who could do radio better than I could because it, it helped me to progress.
1: Yeah, it's always good to, to surround yourself with people who who are good at what they do because it, it, it will yeah, eventually rub off on cause, you.
0: Because there's a lot of people in radio who don't know what they're doing. So, uh, but there's, there's a lot of people in radio full stop who don't know what they're doing. So. <laughs> it's, it's nice to associate with the good ones.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris... As I said, it's been fantastic. It's, it's been really, really uh, interesting talking to you and talking to someone who has another perspective, which is not the London perspective. And, you know, your involvement offshore radio... Um, Is also fascinating and how you got involved with that as well so thank you ever so much for your time Um, thanks Mark it's been good talking to you uh, uh, no problem at all it's been lovely talking to you and um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to hear you on Radio Seagull in the very very near future so thank you very much Chris great
0: thanks Mark
1: thanks for listening to me chatting with Chris Cooper if you've enjoyed it then remember there are 21 other episodes out there just look on your podcast app or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen and click on the Pirates of the Airwaves picture. It also helps if you could like, review, subscribe or follow the podcast. If you'd like to support the making of the podcast, then you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Mark W. Thanks to Dave, Dave, Ken, Tim, Carl and one other person whose name I can't find out. To buy me a coffee. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another podcast from another pirate. So until then, stay safe and remember keep a lookout during those tape changes.
0: Radio Nova, broadcasting on 14.04 kHz of the medium wave band, 212 metres. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return you to normal broadcasting just as soon as we can.
1: This is a 1386 audio production.